Our first reading is from the New Testament. Uh, you can follow this um, in the Pew Bibles on page 66 of the New Testament section. Jesus calls the first disciples. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, and, but, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that the nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Our Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 18. You can find this on page 11 of the Old Testament section. Abram and Lot separate. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He journeyed on by stages from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tents had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar the first, at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them living together. For their possessions were so great that they could not live together. And there was strife between the herders of Abraham's livestock and the herders of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites lived in the land. Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herders and my herders, for we are kindred. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot looked out about him and saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. 
Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Rise up, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. At first hearing, this reading about Abraham and Lot can have a surprisingly modern ring about it. These two groups of people, as they might have put it in their day, would say they had been blessed. Their flocks and herds had increased, and so had the numbers of people in their families. In their world, where famines and diseases could strike and wipe out whole people so quickly, these numbers were a security, a cause for which anyone would thank God. But the problem in the story is the shortage of land. There began to be feuds between the herdsmen of Abraham and Lot. Scarcity, economic scarcity, is always a threat to peace, as any sixth former studying history or economics is going to tell you. If the situation is left unresolved, then almost certainly some kind of violence is going to happen. That's where it starts to sound so modern. Is there anyone here this morning from the Sudan or Yemen? What sounds so strange to us is the way the tension was resolved. Abraham was the senior partner in the family connection and so the assumption of the day would have been that he would have chosen what he wanted and Lot would have been told to go and find something else. Only Abraham does not do that. And it's worth asking why. Once Lot was given the choice, he chose the path that looked most fertile likely to be productive. Well, wouldn't we all? He went for the plain of the Jordan River, well-watered land, like the garden of the Lord, that he should be so lucky. So, we are told, Abraham went in the other direction, into the land of Canaan, and the Canaanites were still in possession of the land. Everyone could see that old Abe had got the poorer deal. Why did he give up his choice to Lot? The answer, I think, has got to be found within the longer story of Abraham. 
But this was one further expression of his trust in the faithfulness of the covenant-calling-making God. The one who'd called him out of his home in the very first place to come and seek a new... Come on, Abraham, leave all of this mess that others have created. Let you and I go and create a new land full of promise. But of course it was a risk. Abraham shows his trust in the God who hopefully will keep his promises, whatever Lot might choose. Lot looks to secure his wealth. We understand that, you and I. Abraham trusts in God, and there's a lot of that sort of thing going on in the Bible, but to be honest, that's what we find much more difficult. Life is never quite so simple as Sunday school choices suggested to us. Many of our choices can be complex, and very rarely can we be aware of all the possible consequences. Brexit. So did you pick up in the reading that warning reference about Sodom, that wicked city? I mean... Just what is Lot walking into? We can have some sympathy with him because we tend to make our choices on what we think appears to be our best interests, what will secure us and our family life. But we can never be completely sure of what's going to be happening. And there are always other idiots around to mess the whole thing up anyway. And the advertisers, well, they can make it all sound so attractive. That said, you see, there really is an important difference between choosing life with our personal security in mind and making our choices in trust of a God who calls us. The trajectory of life is going to be different. And if we are honest, we do find such talk of trusting the goodness of God rather difficult to live with. We would like some more assurances, please. We're not always sure we can trust each other. I'm not always sure I can trust myself, let alone God. And we know within ourselves that when push comes to shove in life, we will look to our own interests. And we would counsel our children to do the same. Yet, we turn up Sunday by Sunday, and we open this old book, and here we get confronted by this story full of talk of trust in God. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I was taught that somewhere in 1945. It was common there on the walls of Sunday school classrooms. In all thy ways acknowledge him, he shall direct thy paths. And this morning, we read the story in Luke's gospel of Jesus calling his first disciples. 
They were into commerce, the local fishing industry, and it sounds as though it had been a fairly long-term family business. Then Jesus enters their lives, calling them into his business, God's project, the rule of God on earth right now. And so they leave their fishing and they follow him. Who knows where? You can imagine some rather heated conversations around the family table those evenings. With the older ones saying, what on earth do you think you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? Following this rabbi. I mean, what do you know about him? Have you thought this through? Can you trust him? William Willimon, that amazing American preacher and teacher of preaching, who used to get quoted quite a lot in the early years of this century from this pulpit, on one time was chaplain at Duke University. And he tells of an occasion when he was seriously accosted by some very irate parents of a student. They were out to get him. They were furious with him, the chaplain, because they had sacrificed and paid for their daughter to have a really good education. She was to become a medical doctor to assure her of a financial future and meet the right people. And what had happened at university? She'd become a Christian. And now was going off to serve in some God-forsaken penniless project overseas. The parents were absolutely furious. Her life was ruined before it had ever begun. They berated the chaplain and stormed off in disgust. And one of the students standing in the group around him just quietly said, Yep, that's the kind of thing that can happen when Jesus turns up. Now, Jesus did call for trusting disciples. He did not call for blind trust. He told disciples to count the cost, the inevitable cost in following the ways of God in the world. There would be no doubt about that. The cost to him, of course, of following the way of the Father for our sakes was the cross. But then there is always some sort of cost in every sort of choice, whatever way you're going to take. Jesus was quite upfront about these things. Following him, putting your trust in God, is the only way to find the land of promise, to live in and enjoy God's rule, to see the renewal of the earth. But there are no guarantees and there is no security other than the promises God gives. And that sounds so desperately insecure in our secularized ears. Yet for Abraham, for the disciples of Jesus, there is in the end no other way forward than the active following of the calling of God. That's faith. It shows in obedient trust. And I or anybody else would be deceiving you why I suggested it meant anything else. Now I could, I suppose, go on and make the point that much of life is like this anyway. 
I'm now of an age when I have to go and see the doctor fairly regularly. And he prods me in all sorts of impertinent places. And then he suggests that I take all manner of tablets. Actually, my GCSE O-level general science just will not carry me this far. I have no idea what they're going to shove into my body, what he suggests I take, but I trust him. So I take the tablets. And at least for the moment, I'm still alive. <laughs> we trust our teachers. Except I look back on my undergraduate years and I'm quite convinced that at least one third of what my teachers taught me at university was misleading, if not simply wrong. And then there are our parents. It was wonderful when we were little because dad knew everything and mum could make the whole world right. And then they grew up and we grew up. And as Oscar Wilde said, in the end, most children come to forgive their parents. And we do it in hope that our children are going to forgive us. We try to make ourselves as secure as we can. We surround ourselves with laws and agreements, contracts stuffed with subclauses. But we have become very wary of trust in our experience. That very gift which in the end makes human society possible. How fundamental and how precarious trust is. Imagine living in a world where you weren't able to trust anyone. All ministers can tell of the agony, the pain that comes with the wounded spouse who, having been betrayed, says, I don't know if I can ever trust them again. And you know that a terrific amount of work is going to have to go on if that marriage is ever to be rebuilt. It will be long and hard because trust is so fundamental to the quality of relationships. God calls for trust. And when it goes, or if it was never there, There is one thing more, the most important thing, that is part of the Bible story that we heard today. We have rather typically in our approach, no, no, to be honest, I have rather typically in my approach to this story emphasized our choosing. That we have the power, right, and freedom to choose is a central feature of the story you and I have come to live by, ever since at least the 16th century. And Baptists had a notable hand in arguing that particularly in matters of religion, we should be free to choose, and no one should tell us what we had to obey. But we do not realize how pervasive and decisive this way of thinking about life has become, we now have a severe political, moral problem about how we build social and political communities together these days, given that it's my right to choose that is the decisive thing. It's our choice, our decision, that's final. 
where once upon a time we lived by stories, different stories, some of which assumed and, and spoke of the sovereignty of God. We now live by the story of my right, my freedom to choose. That's the most significant thing about my person. I choose, therefore I am. And God, it seems, allows this to be so. Have you noticed that in all the story of the Bible, God only ever invites? God does not insist, does not threaten, does not coerce. There have been Christian teachers in the history of the church that have tried to do that, but they have not been faithful to the scripture story. In a strange way, that response of God is what guarantees and respects the freedom that we demand for ourselves. That may not be the way we treat other people, we try to control and manipulate, but it is the way God chooses. And God comes to this by God's free decision. So there's a thought. We emphasize the right to choose, and it has become a problem to us. But God, too, makes his choices. And one basic choice of God is to affirm our freedom, even our freedom to choose to be against God. Yet God has decided in God's freedom to be for us, whatever we choose. That's the truth that underlines the whole story of Scripture in the end, not least this story of Abraham. That is God's choice, and frankly, it is more significant in the end than any of our choosing the supposed right of which we make so much. The foundation on which Abraham is basing his life is the choice of God to be for him and for all his children. Abraham trusts God's faithfulness. He trusts that the divine promise will be kept whatever Lot chooses and whatever follows from that choice. In today's story with Lot, Abraham appears in a good light. He trusts God and God does not fail him. But to be honest, there are other stories when, frankly, Abraham behaves appallingly. You wonder why God should trust him, trust him at all. I'm not sure that I would, and I'm jolly sure that Sarah should never have trusted him again. But then we wonder why God chose Peter, you know, foot-in-mouth Peter. And it's not as if the other disciples are that much better. You might have thought that God could have made some wiser choices when it came to giving out this business of freedom. But no, it's us, you see. It's precisely us, the likes of us, the Abrahams and Peters, the Sarahs and Marys of this world, who are never free of self-interest, whose lives are marked by ambiguity at our very best, but it is to us that God gives this invitation of partnership. Come on, leave this mess. Let's go looking for the new world, the kingdom here on earth, sharing God's hopes, God's desire for new creation. God will never compel us, will not threaten us. 
It is God's promise that we are called to trust. Enough to seek to do his will, to trust his rule right now on earth, which means that sometimes we shall do some very daft things, like loving our enemies, like caring for our neighbors, not least when they come desperate seeking asylum, like putting the interests of an international common good over national self-interests. There are big implications in this trusting of God. And when we do go wrong, choosing our security against the greater will and good of all, God will stand by those purposes for all his children. Our freedom to choose, to live in trust, is grounded in the end in the promise that God will keep God's word and will take up even our terrible blunders into his loving purposes for all humankind. This morning, behold the patient, suffering love of God for us. The cross that goes on bearing our stupidity, our selfishness. Behold a love that is always going out to others. Behold the love that will not let us go. Can we live in that kind of trust, in the conviction that this is the most truthful statement about the whole creation story. It's an important choice this story offers us. To be a lot with an eye open for the main chance for ourselves in an uncertain world. Or to be an Abraham. Taking the risk of trusting the God who calls us from our self-made securities to seek above everything else the reign of God on the face of the earth right now. And we remember the story assumes an even more important choice than ours. Choice of God to be for us. Inviting us to share God's life and love. To trust God through all the changing scenes of life. To trust that there is nothing in life or in death, in the world as it is or the world as it shall be. There is nothing that can separate us from God's love for us in Jesus Christ. When I wrote the sermon, I thought, oh, that's where I finished. And then, because it was Bloomsbury, Another thought came to my mind. I recall a church member talking with me once after a sermon about how he had become a Christian and how what being a Christian meant to him as a member of this church. 
I cannot recall all the details. It was a long time ago. But I do remember how much he said he loved that old hymn, Just As I Am. Not a particular favorite in Bloomsbury in those days. And he especially focused on one verse, which he said for him was the heart of the matter, the faith by which he had come to live. Just as I am, you will receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because your promise, I believe. Let us pray. Eternal God, you know us better than we know ourselves. We come before you in the fellowship of prayer seeking light upon our ways, new strength within our hearts, and blessing for others. In awe and wonder, we bow before the love we cannot measure, the love which will not let us go, known in Jesus. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, for a moment, we rest in the thought that we cannot flee from your presence. God ever around us and going before us. We give you thanks for your spirit at work within us. By your grace, we have seen beauty, known love, discovered truth, and being given a sense of purpose for our lives. Deep in our living, you have been a spring of living water welling up to life eternal. Even now, come and deepen that relationship which we seek with you, even as you have called us, O living God. We come before you bearing many of the perplexities of our daily lives. We ask for some relief from disquieting and cowardly fears. Often bewildered, we can lose stability. The world is too much with us. We are tempted by petty annoyances and great griefs by despondency and doubt, by the angry emotions of our time. Grant us wisdom and courage for the living of these days. We ask especially for guidance in our life of discipleship. The devices and desires of the world entice us. Cynicism tempts us. Our consciences are silenced by subtle persuasions. Give us true penitence. Help us to see the right way and to love it, to live with integrity and love for others. We 
we pray for all Christian churches around the world, for other congregations known especially to us, from the tyranny of old customs and ideas, once helpful but now outgrown. Good Lord, deliver us. From stressing the trivial and forgetting the vital, Lord, save your people. Grant the church the blessing of your own work of constant reformation, that we may proclaim your gospel, that lives be transformed and societies redeemed. Give us fresh hopes of unity, new depths of faith, and increased devotion to the coming of your kingdom here on earth. Guide our nation in these difficult days. Save us and all peoples from selfish nationalism. Save us from any racial prejudice and inhuman discrimination. Where new walls of division are being built, will you frustrate the builders? May we bring help to the dispossessed and poor, ever working for the justice of your kingdom. Strengthen the influence of the United Nations and all agencies dedicated to peace and justice. Give us a new vision of what it means to be human together and bless the peacemakers as you have promised. Living God, for a moment we ask for ourselves. On any here today, broken by fear, sorrow, bereavement or anxiety, come even now with your healing peace. Reassure us in our fearful weakness of your wondrous love for us, your stronghold upon our lives. Renew hope and faith and love within and among us. And will you now lead us into the living of this week? Go before us, O God, with your most gracious providence, that our living with this worship and these prayers becomes one offering to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to whom be all praise and glory forever and forever. Amen.